Hey there! You're listening to Deadhead Girl Talk, the podcast where women talk about the Grateful Dead and lots of other topics. I'm your host, Steph Terrace in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I'm super excited today to introduce my guest, Sally Van Meter, a professional lap slide guitarist from Lyons, Colorado. Welcome, Sally. Thank you. It's nice to be here. I'm so excited to hear some of your stories. Just to let our listeners know a little about your background. First of all, it's Sally, who is playing the beautiful Deep Ellum Blues theme music for this podcast, uh, which was just an incredible uh, opportunity for me when I first started playing that recording and heard it for the first time and heard your guitar just singing that theme, I just knew that this podcast could be a real thing. It was like, oh, this doesn't just have to reside in my head as a creative idea that I might or might not pursue, but I could really make this happen. And it was you who really inspired that with your beautiful music. And so I'm so grateful to you for playing that. It was fun doing that, actually. It was uh, Casey Groves and um, Abby from uh, uh, can't remember Abby's last oh, name. Oh, Abigail Washburn. Yeah, Ab- Abigail Washburn. And we just decided to have fun with it and try to make it as real as we could for you. And it is. It's so wonderful. And now that I have my audio editor, like adding it into each of the episodes, it just makes the whole thing feel like a professional, almost professional effort. So thank you. <laughs> So just a little bit more on your background to introduce you. Sally did let me know she is herself a deadhead um, and that that goes back to the San Francisco scene of the 70s and 80s. So we're going to hear some of that story. And at that time, she was developing her own career as a performing musician with the bluegrass band Good Old Persons and independently um, on the lap slide guitar. Um, And in 1994, Sally performed on a Grammy Award winning album, The Great Dobro Sessions. And maybe most importantly for our conversation, she recorded with Jerry Garcia and David Grisman on the Bob Dylan produced Jimmy Rogers tribute album just a few months before Jerry died in 1995. Let's start our conversation, Sally, with your experience of hearing the Grateful Dead studio albums when you were a teenager which I think also some have at that time, Jerry Garcia playing the pedal steel and maybe Mm -hmm. how that sounded to you as you were also, I I assume, beginning to experiment with that instrument yourself. Well, the slide guitar yourself. Yeah. Ed, I was playing slide guitar, lap slide guitar. um, When I was about 15, I, I play guitar since I was really young and that was my first instrument and I, you know, started listening to bands like Little Feet from the, in the 70s and actually late 60s even, and was just falling in love with it. And my, my background is that I grew up in a musical family and my father played rhythm guitar in a Hawaiian, a very schmaltzy, but very good Hawaiian trio. And they had a great steel player. So I, I knew what steel playing was uh, was and had a really great example as a 10 year old to kind of form and inform myself about it I guess you could say and um my I had three older brothers that all were uh the oldest two were real deadhead fans and used to hitchhike to San Francisco to Winterland and go see the dead and god knows who else back then 
And when I was 17 going on 18, I had a roommate who came in the house one day and said, listen to this record. And he put on the Mars Hotel record. Mm. And it just kind of knocked me right off my feet. And what a great record that was. That was my first real introduction to the dead. And I fell in love with that record. And it was back in the days of vinyl. And I swear I wore that record out. And because the songs were great, but what really caught my attention were two things, which was Garcia's lead guitar playing, but also his pedal steel playing. And I remember that I had not long after I heard that first record, the Mars Hotel record, I ended up being able to purchase uh, a pedal steel guitar, a really old fashioned one. And I sat and kind of figured out, I had enough familiarity with what playing slide in an open tuning was about. And so I kind of taught myself what the pedals on a pedal steel means. And um, I figured out a couple of different solos from that record. And oh, yeah. I was hooked. <laughs> and I just fell in love with that record. And, and it's funny because I heard Mars Hotel first, and then I went backwards to Working Men's Dead and American Beauty and fell in love with those recordings. And I went through, you know, the Europe 72 I really liked. and. Um, I kind of got up to the blues for Allah era, uh, recording era. And those, those were my kind of, if you, I guess you could call them Grateful Dead formative years for me. Yeah. And since I have the opportunity to talk to a guitarist about the guitar, can you reflect a little about how you hear Jerry Garcia maybe differently than just a fan like me would hear sure. it? Sure, sure. I think from a player's point of view, you're you're hearing these incredible solos that are so freeform, but yet so in, intricately connected to the song itself. And as a musician, when you hear some of the phrases that Jerry Garcia would play, you would you would marvel because they were it was almost like free association for me that he was making yet the connection. He never lost the connection to the song. It wasn't just a bunch of notes that he could throw in there. For me, I always noticed that he had intent for almost every single note he ever played. Mm. And that that's really important. I think when you're a musician is that you see that there's this, I don't know how to describe it, except that it could be considered to be a little bit like a, a river that flows uninterrupted, but doesn't go completely crazy and rush over the rocks. Everything has a purpose in there. And I always felt that Garcia's playing, no matter how fluid and freeform it could be, it always had intent and purpose. And do you, did you see how you could incorporate that into your own playing or understanding of what you were trying to do as a musician? I don't, I don't know if I understood that, to be honest, but what I do know is that it was really influential for me in some respect in terms of that my goal has always been as a musician and will probably always be 
that goal is to find the connection and and to be able to hear what's see what's in my head come out through my hands onto the instrument and and have it make sense and have it be lyrical that that's one thing i love about jerry garcia's playing is it's lyrics he's a was a very lyrical player he had it he had evocative quality he had emotional content he had phrasing that felt like he was singing what he was playing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I really like that about his playing always have yes me too so d- did you see him live when you were just like 19 20 years old actually I think yeah I think I was about 17 18 and 19 and there was a big uh I like to call it a small mass migration of people from New Jersey uh, out to California to the land of milk and honey. And they had all been, they were, a lot of them were musicians and are still to this day. And they had been told by other friends who'd come out to the town that I grew up in, which was uh, Chico, California. And they wrote all their friends and said, you've got to come out here. They have fruit tree orchards. They have beautiful swimming holes because Chico was a very small town back then. So there was this mass migration and we all somehow through the cosmos connected with each other and became fast lifelong friends. So there'd be times when we would go down to San Francisco in somebody's car that would barely run and go to Winterland and, and listen to the dead and watch them. And that was always a, a pretty open experience for me because I was, I think the first time I saw him, I was 18 maybe. And um, it was, Winterland was a magical, weird place for someone that comes from a small town who went to a one-room schoolhouse, that kind of thing as a young person. And there, I remember Winterland being full of dancing, twirling people. And I was also warned that I should not drink or eat anything that was passed to me by anyone there, (laughs) (laughs) you know, because it, those were, those were magical times that I think no longer exist, honestly. And so I'm not to use a pun here, but I'm really grateful that I got to experience that kind of, uh, grateful dead experience in itself. And the music was always it never stopped. And it didn't, isn't there a line and the music never stopped or something like that? Yeah. That, that, is but song. yeah. that was what it was like was that it was just peace, love and music. It really was. It was a great time. And did you take the advice not to drink anything? I never did. I never drank anything out of a glass and I never drank, ate anything passed to me in an envelope. <laughs> And did you know what that warning was about when you were 18? I did. And and I was just a very naive young person who hadn't seen that part of the world that could allow you to feel jaded about things. But I was just a cautious, when you grow up with three older brothers, you mm-hmm. learn, you learn a lot mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, pre-experience, you know. And seeing the band live on the stage, and you, of course, would soon become a performing musician yourself. Did that have any effect on the way you thought about what, you know, performing was supposed to be? Well, I think the main influence was that there was this band 
it was almost less paying attention to the band, but to the vibe that just emanated from the band um, and how happy people were. That, that was more my experience of going to dead concerts was how happy and free everything felt. And because the music, especially at Winterland, the music was extremely loud. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of hard to focus individually on something like that. But the happiness, I, it it's really probably sounds very saccharine to say that, but there was a lot of happiness in when you would go to a dead concert. Everybody was there to have a good time and not be stressed out by things like civil rights and Vietnam War and and things like that. It was just a really different time for, and I was very young. I was really naive. So for me, I think the influence that I got from going to dead concerts was that this was this, this place where you felt safe and you felt happy and you were allowed to be who you were. And that I think the Grateful Dead always even if they didn't intend to promote that. Mm-hmm. Did you talk about the shows with your musician friends that you described having moved to Chico? Not really. Um, because I, when I was, uh, by the time I had started going to dead concerts and I was living in the San Francisco Bay area, which was in the, let's see, 75 through 77, I, in the bluegrass world, nobody was aware that Garcia had been a bluegrass player himself. Very few people were aware of that. So it wasn't necessarily cool to like the Grateful Dead. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but I had other friends, my friends from New Jersey, and we would all talk about how fun that experience was. I mean, we were just like six friends walking, you know, on Lombard Street, heading towards, you know, trying to find a way to get to Winterland um, and, you know, parking down in the Marina District so we could have a place to park and then making our way to Winterland, that kind of stuff. It was really an amazing time. There was no fear about anything unlike what it is today. Yeah. So when you say that other people didn't recognize Jerry's background as a bluegrass musician. Did you know about that? No, I was not aware until probably the late 80s that he had this whole history of playing bluegrass and in a in really good bluegrass bands and with you know with a kind of a Jerry Garcia flavor to it, but he really respected traditional bluegrass. And even when you hear some of the recordings he's done with uh David Grisman. And they do the duet thing and they're they're taking on the really old traditional songs because they love them. They they both, I believe, I know that David certainly knows the value of traditional, but I also really feel that um, personally that Jerry Garcia really loved that music and valued it in the way that it needed to be valued, even though he put a slightly hey, you know, it's the 70s peace love thing onto some of it. He still respected it greatly. Did you have an opportunity to see him perform that kind of music live? No, he had not. He had stopped doing that in the late 60s. Um, And I didn't come onto the scene until 
about 76. That's when I started to really enter into the kind of Bay Area bluegrass scene, which was an amazing scene on its own. And, and Garcia was fully enmeshed, enmeshed in the, in the dead experience, you know? Right. By then. Yeah. I mean, there was Olden in the Way, which was a highly influential record to a lot of people my age who I grew up knowing what traditional bluegrass was like Flat and Scruggs and Bill Monroe. But there were a lot of young people who didn't even know what bluegrass was until the Olden in the Way record came out, which was it was a landmark recording in so many ways. It influenced so many people to give bluegrass a listen, which I think is another great contribution that that um, Jerry gave to music was to bring people into the fold that would never have considered it. Did you do you remember when that record came out? Do you remember hearing it for the first time? Yeah. And it was mind it was mind blowing. I think it was. It might have been 75. Um, somewhere around there. Um, I mean, I'm an old person now, so it's hard to recall which years or which, but it was in the mid seventies. And, and it was, it was just a magical combination of people who all knew the music. They all knew, you know, Garcia was a great banjo player. Um, and Peter Rowan, great singer, great writer of songs and Grisman and world-class mandolinist and they all had roots in bluegrass music so that record had that had that soul factor about it even though it was considered pretty modern for bluegrass compared to somebody like Bill Monroe or a band like Flatt and Scruggs which was the really traditional stuff it still had that that thing that captured your heart which is what bluegrass music does Uh, how did it capture your heart the storytelling and the way the band worked together and they were all pals. They had been pals for a really long time. And I, and they had Vassar Clements on fiddle, who was a traditional fiddler from Florida, from Kissimmee, Florida, I believe is where uh, Vassar was from, but it had all these elements that they all brought together and without much effort created this, landmark recording that most people say that was the album that really turned me onto bluegrass. Mm-hmm. And I love that. And it, I, I had already been listening to bluegrass and grew up on, you name it, um, because of my parents were pretty young and we had everything from Bill Monroe to Giuseppe Verdi's opera in my house. And um, so for me, when I listened to that record, it was new, it was fresh with deep roots and the right kind of feel and in the storytelling and and the playing was just just amazing playing and they all were really cohesive as a band even though they weren't necessarily a traditional band that had been together for decades they it was very new but they all knew what they were doing they all knew and respected the music enough to when they brought it to themselves as their group it had cohesion, it had clarity, it had emotional content, it had great songwriting, it had all the elements that you really want. Mm-hmm. And are those, is that the list of things that you try to achieve with your recording, Sally? Oh, yeah. I, I want something whenever I go into the studio or work for anybody in the studio, um, it's what I'm looking for is 
is just to be an honest player. I don't have to show off. I don't actually like to show off and say, well, here's my technical prowess. I don't believe in that. I just believe in that you need to be honest with the music. And if you allow it to move you, you can be honest in music and, and be the player that you are and, and strive for the things that count for you. And for me, there's a few things that are critical for me, which is understand the words, what they mean, what the song is about and find the melody in your playing and, and find your tone and your phrasing and, and all the things that make people happy when they hear music. It doesn't matter whether it's, well, with the exception of maybe metal, <laughs> not a big metal fan, but I love everything else. I spend as much time listening to Ella Fitzgerald as I do to um, Beethoven, as I do to Little Feet, as I do to John Hyatt, as I do to Flatt and Scruggs. They, they all say the same thing to me, which is, I think, what is a lucky thing to be able to get when you're a musician, that it all affects you in the same internal way. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's take a quick break. Once I had a girlfriend, she meant the world to me. She went down to Deep Ellum, now she ain't what she used to be. Oh, sweet mama, daddy's got them Deep Ellum blues. Oh, sweet mama, daddy's got them Deep Ellum Well, let's turn to this recording that you had an opportunity to do with Jerry Garcia, because I really want to hear that story broken down in its full detail. Can you start with telling me like how you learned about the project and how you were invited to participate? Sure. Um, I know I knew that um, a friend of mine, Joe Craven, a great percussionist, great fiddle player, He'd been off and on doing some recording with Garcia for quite a few years before the Jimmy Rogers uh, project came into focus for me. And I was so impressed that Garcia wouldn't choose to hire the most famous players. He would hire the players that did it for him, that he liked their playing and that he felt moved enough by their playing to bring him onto a project. And so I was aware that he had been doing these sessions with Joe and um, a few other things like that. And one morning I got a phone call from David Grissom's manager and, um, oh, and there's a spoiler alert in that there's a cuss word in this. So you'll have to bleep it out. <laughs> we don't care. We like cuss words. Go okay, right good. Okay. So I got a call from uh, David's manager, uh, Craig Miller, and he's, in his own inimitable fashion, he said, hey, um, there's a Garcia session um, coming up and Jerry um, asked for you. And apparently what I heard down the road, you know, a couple of decades later is that he said he wanted that Dobro chick <laughs> for this <laughs> recording. And but I, you know, it, it kind of stunned me because it was something that just kind of came out of left field, so to speak. And he said, are you interested? And I said, absolutely. And he goes, well, you know, Jerry could change his mind the day before we decide to go in. And I said, fine, I'm just count me. I'm on board because the thought of getting to meet him was really thrilling. 
And I didn't feel scared. That was the interesting thing was I was not scared about it. And, you know, Garcia was a pretty famous guy by then. But for me, it was like, oh, my God, I get to make music with Jerry Garcia, who's one of my heroes. Mm-hmm. And um, so I said, yeah, just let me know. I'll be ready. Kind of conversation. And so I think about, oh, maybe somewhere between four and six weeks went by and I got the call that it was happening. And so I drove up to Grisman's studio in Mill Valley, that which is where he lived at the time. And I remember it, it was way up on a hillside. I, I was not that familiar with Mill Valley at the time, even though I lived in uh, San Anselmo. No, I lived in Nevada at the time. And um, was just a little north of there. And so I got out of the car, grabbed my Dobro and came into David's studio, which was a small home studio. And my reaction was so funny because I didn't feel particularly nervous, but I walked in and there's David was in the, uh, the control room with the engineer and Jerry Garcia was at a sink and he had been making a smoothie. and both David and I'd known David since the mid seventies, um, since about 77 and knew him fairly well. And I looked at David who had silvery white hair at that time, a little bit portly. And I looked at across the other to the other room where the sink was. And there was another gentleman with white hair and slightly portly. And I went, Oh, who's who? Because <laughs> I couldn't see David's face at the time. And then I realized <laughs> I was standing there. And that's when I started to feel like the big thrill was I realized that was Jerry. And so David saw me and he came out into the main room and he he uh, introduced us by saying, Sally, Jerry, Jerry, Sally. And that was a big thrill for me because I felt like one of the guys, you know, because music tends to be a, a boys club anyways. But I felt like I had achieved something by being allowed to record music and encouraged to record music with a hero. And Jerry walked up to me and he grabbed my hand and just shook it really hard and really long. He said, man, I'm a big fan of yours. I've heard everything you've ever played. Um, I'm glad to have you here kind of thing. Wow, yeah. what did that feel like to have <laughs> yeah, say well, that? It was amazing and it was very flattering. And but it the with musicians, there's a really there's a tight circle, then there's an extended circle as well. And it felt good to be part of that extended circle. And I remember thinking in my head, play it cool, play it cool, don't don't go. Oh, Jerry, I'm your biggest fan, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> because I didn't want to look like um, a, an amateur. And so when he said that, I just kind of internally took a, a breath and gave it a second and said, feelings mutual. And that's that's what I said. And I'm really glad I did that because I definitely was pleased to be able to let him know that I was a fan of his musicianship. And that he liked my playing was pretty dang nice. And so then um, we, they had decided to do this tune, the Jimmy Rogers tune, Blues, Blue Yodel Number no. 9, which is all about getting in trouble and going to jail. <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. And, you know, it's slightly, slightly appropriate there. And so 
we sat, we sat at a, a, this is a picture that's in my mind indelibly for me. Um, it's an, it's imprinted almost is that at one point I sat on the floor with my dobro and I think Jerry sat on the stool with his guitar and David was standing up and we started running through the tune. And I think we ran through it a couple of times to make sure that we were all on the same page um, in terms of the arrangement and things like that. But I remember that, I don't know who did it, but somebody rolled a big joint and lit it up and Garcia took a big hit and then passed it to me. And I, I knew that if I did that, I wouldn't be able to play a note because I'd get into my head, feel paranoid because I was high. So I passed on it. So I passed on that great opportunity to say, yeah, I smoked a joint with him, (laughs) but I wasn't a pot smoker at the time, you know, so I had quit smoking pot. And uh, so they finished it. And then we all went to our respective places in the room. And I remember also John Kahn was there on bass. And I can't remember the guy's name. I think it was George Marsh was on some kind of percussion in another corner. It was a very tight, small little studio. And we went through the tune, I think, maybe three or four times and kept one of those takes is what we used. Um, And it was it was an interesting experience because Garcia was recovering from, I think, bronchitis. So he wasn't in the best vocal form. He was pretty ragged, but it was still that sound, that identifiable vocal sound that he only he had. You knew it was Garcia when you would listen to a recording. Mm -hmm. And so, and I remember just sinking into this place that it just felt really natural to do this kind of thing. And then we finished. And I remember that Jerry Garcia asked me, I don't feel like I was on intimate enough terms to say, yeah, me and Jerry, but, but Jerry Garcia is very respectful, albeit formal. Um, but I remember that he looked at me and goes, so are you in the musicians union? And I said, no, but I ha- I'm having to join if I want credit printed on this recording. And because if you aren't in the musicians union, they don't have to list you as a, as a performer on anything. Mm. And so I did join the Marin County Musicians Union. And, but I remember distinctly, and here comes the cuss word, by the way. Um, he said, you know what I have to say about the Musicians Union? And I said, no, what's that? And he goes, fuck them. They're a bunch of egg sucking dogs. <laughs> and I went, okay, yeah. You know, what do you say to something like that? That's a statement in itself that needs no response. Right. <laughs> But I just kind of went, he would, it really made me realize he was just a really normal guy with great talent mm-hmm. um, is how I walked away. A lot of my feelings were, were like that. And we finished the tracking and then it was time to go. And he was being picked up uh, in a cab and he was actually on his way to Southern California um, to get healthier, I believe. And The last thing he said to me, which was really, it made my heart feel good. He said, he just looked at me and he smiled and he said, we're going to do this again. Really? Yeah. And it that was just like, I could get along with this guy really well. (laughs) 
You know, he would probably be that person who would inspire me to take a few more risky, risky things in my music and be okay with it. Because that's what I feel like he did is he just responded. And I know that he was really musical. I'm positive he could read music, things like that. But he just let his freak flag fly. And he was one of those players whose music never lost the thread no matter what he did, you know? So it was a really sweet thing to, to know that he had said to me, it was really pretty cool. And then I drove home on cloud nine because that, that was one of those, I've had a couple of other experiences like that with other really well-known musicians who um, I really admire. And another one of them was Yorma Kalkinen and spent some time on the road with Yorma. And, you know, just these, these guys were guys who influenced me and I got the chance to experience what it was like to play music with them. And that Mm -hmm. was pretty, pretty amazing for someone my age. And Mm -hmm. there are so few women that are instrumentalists. I mean, it's way different now, but back in the seventies, it was, it, with the exception of California and a few other areas, it was pretty unusual for women to be lead instrumental players. Yeah. And to have that opportunity to be in the boys club and mm-hmm. really contribute what you, you did on that recording and, and on other work that you've done. It's an amazing career, Sally. Well, it's, it's had its, it's had its big ups and it's had probably an equal amount of downs because it's a very hard life unless you want to live on the road, which I'm not fond of. It's unless there, there's a comfort zone that comes with it. It's a, it's a pretty hard living. And I will say that the one thing that never came across to me from any of the musicians that I worked in, in, in the Bay area for all those decades was um, no matter who it was, it could have been Tony Rice, it could have been David, it could have been Jerry Garcia. No one ever made me feel unwelcome in it. And I didn't feel like it had to be the boys club from them. If there was pressure for that, that was me putting that upon myself because there were very few opportunities for women to, to be that strong of a lead player. It just was unusual. And so the good old boy club kind of existed because that was who the bulk of the players were. And when you look at nowadays, it's changed so much. Um, I had, I had some mentors that were women players before me um, and they helped me feel like it's what I was supposed to do, but there were definitely battles where auditions would come up and specifically they wouldn't, hire because if you were a woman they didn't want a woman in the band etc so I never felt that vibe from any any anybody you know and when I went back east and went to the south that was significantly different ah different regions of the country different regions of the country where it was very unusual to have women be solo players and you know it, it just was culturally very different and I got my first you know rude awakening about that the first time I went and played back east and in kind of the southeast and it was like 
you know, the standard, you play really great, even if you are a girl. (laughs) And I used to get mad about it. And then I realized they were really just trying to compliment me. And so I learned to say thank you. Yeah. And not and not respond. But those guys never. I just felt like I was with the right people at the right time. There was never that. Wow, there's a chick playing on the record, you know. Mm-hmm. And the good a, good old persons was a women's band, is that right? Or mostly? Well, yeah, it's the good old person started in 1975, um, and it was all women at the time, and it was kind of done as a tongue in cheek. Well, we can show them that as women, we we can be equal to them in our playing ability. And the name was kind of intended slightly tongue in cheek, but it stuck because the band was such a good band. And then they added um, a male fiddle player, Paul Shalasky, who's such a great fiddle player. And then I joined the band after that. And then after that, we added one more uh, man to the band, John Reichman on mandolin. And it, and it felt really normal to us. Nothing felt out of the ordinary, but I remember the first time we went back East, it was a very different story. Did you want to talk about that at all or should we move on? Um, No, I think, I, I think that just suffice to say that for women, I mean, I know I do, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I'm fairly sure I was probably the only woman instrumentalist that ever played on a, on a, other than maybe in the bluegrass days or in even the folk days before the bluegrass days for Garcia. Um, Cause I know that people like Yorma hung out and played and sang with Janis Joplin and stuff like that. So I can't go back quite that far, but um, it, it was, I, it's hard to explain this one because I used to be mad about it, but I look at it now and I just go, you just do your work. You do your work, you earn your respect. And that's what it's always been for me. I've never been in an all-girl band that wanted to wear petticoats and have cute names like Petticoat Junction and things like that. There was <laughs> No, actually, you've never done that. <laughs> never done that and, and actually fought my way to never do it, you know? Mm-hmm. But but to me, musicians were musicians and and I used to do a lot of interviews that always started with, so what's it like to be a girl, uh, a woman player? And I, my, my answer eventually became, well, I'm a player who just happens to be a woman and I'm strong in my playing. I know what I'm good at and I embrace it because it's what I'm meant to do. Yeah. You know? Do you remember when you heard that Jerry had died? Oh, I remember exactly where I was. I had gotten up really early in the morning, done a couple of things, and then for some reason laid down on the couch and had kind of fallen back into, drifted a little bit back into the sleep zone. And I remember waking up hearing the words and Jerry Garcia dead at, and it woke me right up. And it it broke my heart because this was, I think, I'm not sure I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was only about three weeks after four weeks after we'd done the recording. It wasn't very long after that. And it just made me really, really sad. And it was hard to hard to understand because he was fairly young. Um, Yeah. 53, maybe somewhere around there. And I just felt stunned 
um, completely stunned because he was vibrant when I met him and I knew he'd had like um, lung problems with a bronchitis condition and stuff. But, but in terms of communication, he was right there. He was awesome. And that just like, it, it was just kind of a shock. I kind of went into a little bit of shock, I think about it. And you just, it's one of those things where you just have to kind of go, well, that happened. Mm-hmm. And there's no way, no other way of getting around it. And so I remember spending some time listening to a lot of the old dead stuff, you know, mm. and just really realizing how fortunate I was to have gotten a chance to play music with somebody that I really admired musically, you know. I can only imagine what that must have felt to you, especially well, after that goodbye comment from him. Yeah, that's that's what really hit me so quickly. It was that we won't get to do it again because of this. And, you know, it was really weird when the when the recording came out and it took a while because there was a there was a lot of issues surrounding his estate and things like that. And um I remember Rolling Stone reviewed it and they were pretty nasty uh, towards Garcia and it really, it really angered me. They, they complained about his singing and they, they were mostly nice to all the other recordings that were done by all the other artists, but they were pretty, they were pretty merciless when it came to talking about him. I, I really, I quit reading Rolling Stone after that because it made me so angry. They were not kind at all. Mm. You know, it's like, why, why say anything if you don't have something nice to say, especially after somebody's passed, you know? And it is your understanding that that was his last recording in a studio. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is, it's just heartbreaking. Even all these decades later. Yeah. I mean, cause when the, when he said to me we're going to do this again i could my brain of course went wow we could go do this maybe i'll get to do that maybe we can do this musically together you know cuz it's it's a thrill to play with somebody that you really truly respect even if they're better players than you and he is a pretty amazing player but i felt encouraged and equal i guess is a good word i felt very equal there and that made me sad that that was never going to be able to happen. For mm-hmm. sure. It was, it was, it was a very finalized thing for me. Do you feel like you now have a responsibility to younger musicians to give them those feelings? Oh yeah, very much so. I do a lot um, just because of my age factor. I'm slowing. I have really slowed down any touring unless it's the kind that, you have a comfort zone because when you're this age, you, you want to things to be as normal as you can. But I work and play with a lot of people who are much younger than me, like even 30 years younger. And I teach people who are much younger than me. And we have, instead of me saying, here's a piece of paper, look what's on this and learn to play it. We sit and we, we talk philosophy. We, we, 
look at the history, we look at the cultural implication, we look at the storytelling, we look at how people make things work for them musically, where they find it to bring it out and allow it to be shared with other players or an audience and things like that. And and it's really important to me to always uh, encourage younger people. And, and I had one student uh, for, off and on for about, I think close to three years who I started working with when he was 13, he had just turned 13 is extremely talented. And we would spend two hours almost every Sunday sitting in my living room, listening to music and talking about it and me helping him work on not not necessarily technique, but why you want to do something, why something fits, how you can create a musical whole, because that's that's a lot of what's missing from private teaching especially in the in the kind of roots field and you know there's so much history behind music no matter whose music it is whether it's the dead's music or whether it's Bill Monroe's music or anything it all has a, a social history and a cultural history that you should always pay attention to because that informs how you feel about it which in turn informs what comes out of you into your hands onto your instrument mm. What a great lesson to be sharing with the next generations. I love it. They and that's the thing. They are the next gen. They're the they're the flame keepers to me. And I've never liked that expression, but now I really understand it. And you want you want them to to know why someone like me goes back 60, 70 years of musical history and uses that that storytelling and that that urgency in the music to inform what I do and these days there are such amazing young players some that are like 14 15 years old that are incredibly talented and what they're lacking is the connection to the history and 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 the cause of it you know when you look at the Stanley brothers and it was so often all about death and dying and coal miner tragedies and floods and things like that but that was their experience and that's what made their music sound the way that it sounded and when you're influenced by that you can't help but bring that emotional content into anything you do and and when you work with a young person and you encourage them to find a way to relate to how they feel when they hear something and and understand what it is that they're feeling because that's what comes into your playing. Mm -hmm. And then you look forward in the inspiration from your own life experiences. Right. 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 You know, when I think of songs like box of rain or even the words to ripple, which are so simple and so heartfelt. And there's, I always felt, I still feel actually that there's, there's a, a meaning to the words that were written about that were written like that, that they were relating to a cultural experience or a time in their life that, that made them be the people that they were then and to become. And to me, I think when you work with young people, it's important to, to bring that up, to, to bring it into the conversations, if you will. Mm -hmm. Well, Sally, that was most of the questions I wanted to ask. Is there anything else you want to share with 
the audience of Deadhead Girl Talk? No, I don't know, really. Um, probably not. <laughs> um, I'm just, I'm really appreciative that you're doing something like this. I think it's great that you have um, a, a, a blog or I, I, what do you call a podcast? That's what I'm looking for. I'm ancient. I'm a dinosaur <laughs> when it comes to technology. Um, I really am encouraged that you're doing something like this because I think it's great to bring more women into the conversation and normalize it as, as an, cause it's still not an equal or level playing field and it, it'll be a long time before it really fully feels like that for a lot of people. But I think just opening that door and bringing women into the conversation is really pretty great. Um, and I'm really appreciative that you asked me to even be a part of this just because there's lots of us girls out there who have been the, that almost not, I wouldn't say silent warriors, but we've been the people who keep on the path mm -hmm. and because, and we're inspired by the women before us who went on that path against all odds, culturally speaking. And, you know, there's, there's women of color, women of every economic strata that you can think of that need to be always be a part of the conversation so i encourage women to if you're a player and you're out there and you love the dead don't be intimidated just go for it well i don't see a better place to stop than that thank you very much <laughs> sally oh you're very welcome deadhead girl talk is produced by steph terrace that's me with my audio engineer liam Cadle. Our awesome original music is performed by Sally Van Meter, Casey Groves, and Abigail Washburn, and engineered by Eric Wiggs. Art for the show is created by Lisa F. And Armstrong and by Sparkles Kate. You can follow us on Twitter at Deadhead Talk.